Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast, episode 237. Today I'm taking you to meet Joelle Taylor. She's an award-winning poet, playwright, author and editor. And this week she's able to add curator to that list. I first met Joelle about five or six years ago at the Poetry Cafe in London where I was giving just a very short talk at a spoken word evening, which Joelle was headlining. And I've got to say, Joelle's performance properly blew me away. For many years, Joelle has gone into prisons to do poetry workshops and been a judge for Kersler Art's annual exhibition at the Royal Festival Hall. Well, this year, she's been asked to curate the exhibition. Previous curators have been Speech to Bell, Benjamin Zephaniah, who are both poets and spoken word artists. From the visual art world, there's been Anthony Gormley, Sarah Lucas, Grayson Perry, last year, Ai Weiwei, of course. If you've never been to one of these Cursor Arts exhibitions, I urge you to go. Not only because I'm a trustee of that charity, but it is one of the most powerful exhibitions you'll ever attend. It's always just full of love, empathy and hope. And I should add, for me personally, Whenever the curator is a non-visual artist, they always seem to bring something a little extra to the table. So I'm really looking forward to see what Joelle has in store. She's titled the show, In Case of Emergency. And it runs from this 2nd of November to the 17th of December. So if you're in London on the run up to Christmas, head down there, you'll love it. So rather than me give away any more of this episode, Come and listen to the person herself, Joel Taylor. There you are. Oh, nice to see you how again, are Gary. you? Yeah, good. Yeah, I like your. Is it posters over the back there, or just? Uh... Oh yeah, yeah. So the Dyke one. That that's uh that was um what do you call it? Um, you have placard. Yeah, placard. That's brilliant. It. Um, it was I can't remember. It was a trans rights march or. A... Is it yours or? Or it was somebody it else's, that. and they yeah. left it round my house, and I was like, "I'm on, I want it." Acquired it. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. And how are you on this uh, strangely warm autumn day? It's really weird. I haven't been able to work out what to wear. I'm tutoring this afternoon, and I'm wearing this like tweed suit. Basically, I no matter what happens, Gary, I continue as though no weather has changed, nothing's happened. I just keep walking through life like that. Brilliant. In a tweed suit, tweed bikini, no tweed. 
Joel, I've got several questions that I ask each guest. Okay. So the first one, how would you explain what you do to someone that may not know your work? I'm an author, poet, thinker, and performer. Brilliant. So I generate ideas. The ideas become either poems or novels or plays. And then I work really hard to get those um, into a state where other people can access them. I believe poetry has purpose. I'm primarily known as a poet. And I believe poetry has purpose. It, it's, it's, a, it's a verb, it's a doing word. So when I write a poem or a poetry collection, it's not just about uh, a random selection of poems on a page, it's themed. And along with the book, I have a project that will run. So a huge, huge commitment on my part is toward community, that filthy C word that um, Thatcher's government <laughs> it, um, eradicated, erased. The yeah. sense of community and through that I'm you know I lead master classes and workshops to enable people to be able to write their own stories that's essentially yeah. what I do well I've discovered myself when I was in prison and I know you do a lot of work in prisons and we, we'll come to that two ways that most people would try to be creative would be storytelling and poetry because mm. you can do both with the minimal equipment being a pen and yeah. paper which all prisoners have access to yeah and then that starts that creative process yes. sows that seed and then that just grows yeah I mean I think crucially the thing about being able to write in prison whether it's short stories or or poetry is that the inmate owns the work 100 exactly. and completely you know they they might not own the pen or even the piece of paper <laughs> but they can memorize the work they own it it's something um I, I call it the last free art, yeah. you know, because there are all kinds of cases of, of um, inmates creating 3D pieces of work or visual art in prison, and it doesn't belong to them. Yeah. You know, it belongs to the system, which is, I think, quite a unique situation in the UK. With poetry, um, you know, the only prison you have is your own mind, and you have to break through it, break through. When you open a page, a blank piece of paper, the first thing I say to generally men is, it, you know, that's the escape tunnel. There it is, right there. Yeah. Now pick up your pen, it's a shovel, start yeah. digging. Excellent. See you on the other side. You know, it's a pull to, I've seen remarkable things. And I say mainly men because obviously something like, I mean, don't get me wrong, you'll probably know, something like 95% of the prison estate is male. Yeah. So when I generally meet men in a writing workshop, the first thing I notice is... um is the journey that took them there. And if you dig down, if you really start to develop a relationship with these men, you discover that they were all in care. They were yeah. all in pupil referral units. They were all in youth offenders and now they're all in prison. And there's a remarkable thing that happens when these people who have to be by necessity, watchful, wary, closed, you know, aggressive in, in some manner, they've got to yeah. use their physicality to protect themselves. You'll see a moment where they crack and they realise that they never had a chance. Yeah. But this is the chance, this workshop, this moment. So write out your life story. Now change your life story, rewrite it, do it in a different way. Now start using your imagination. Now next thing you know, these guys are addicted to each other's work because they get to, as well as um, creating their own works, a really vital part of it is empathy. Roger Robinson, the poet, calls poems small empathy machines. And that means you're sitting in a group of maybe 15 guys that 
Some might be on your wing. Generally, they're off from all over the place. You don't really know them or have had a conversation. It's all very tense. Um, and suddenly they start to open like little flowers toward each other. They'll hear a guy stand up and he'll say, and they feel comfortable enough to go, whoa, that yeah. image, yeah. you know, it's not just like, well, your life has been really tough, bro. It's been, it's about the techniques that they're using. It's about the way, um, the, the wide cinema of poetry, you know, that, yeah. that they're able to do that. And you see this over a course that these men, and these women start believing themselves and start believing they can move forward yeah. and do things and, and understand other people's perspectives, you know. As you was just mentioned there about empathy, I discovered a little too late, but quite a while ago, that that was the, my key to creativity. I know it sounds a bit like a George Benson song here, but <laughs> once I had a little bit of empathy and understanding and allowed myself to pat myself on the back a little bit, Yes. Rather than just look down on myself. Then mm -hmm. I started doing that with other people as well. Yeah. You know? And once yeah. I had that little bit of understanding, yeah, that was a good thing. But empathy was the was the main thing. That was the word that I'd been looking at yeah. in my visual art. I was trying to look for a word that brings everything together. And I was watching telly once and there was a guy talking about his book on empathy. And then I I was like, fuck, that's the word. That's the thing that pulls all of mine together. Gary, all, all, all of it is about that. They're, yeah. they're not just poems being small empathy machines, but the whole of art is a bridge toward another person. Yeah. It's about connection, and that connection goes both ways. You know, so um, I, I'm, in terms of what I've seen, certainly, you know, curating the Kessler, but just generally in prisons, is this... Uh, it's an incredible resurrectionist kind of moment yeah. where these people realize that 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 there's these whole worlds inside them, you know, and it is based in empathy. It's based in, like you say, empathy, forgiving ourselves a little bit. Yeah. And um, because definitely. as you know, when you first go into prison, I was really startled at first in my initial workshops, first years, about how um how seeking forgiveness. All the, all the writing is, it's all very redemptive work. You know, I'm sorry. And, and and that actually, I think, is a barrier to recovery yeah. and rehabilitation because it's almost like you're holding up. Yeah, I'm sorry, I said I'm it's sorry. It's a white flag. You're holding up stuff. a white flag to society sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but the next stage on is going like, but why did I do that? Okay. Yeah. Okay, but... But I can break this cycle. I can do this because if I if I can rewrite a story now, you know, a really great exercise to do is um, write your life story. Now change it. Write it again differently. Brilliant. Don't just be the opposite. Take a different. Instead of going left, go right and see where logically that takes you. You know, yeah. and in doing that, you're quite right. All these little connections between people are made, um, and you start to understand your life. Yeah, a little and bit. Most of the time, Joe, you can trace it back to a junction where you went left when you should have gone right. Yes. And then you've made that initial mistake, and then it's just a snowball of trying to deal wrongly with yeah, that mistake. If, if you're from a background that where this is expected, you don't get any second chances. Yeah. You know? You really, really don't. And we know, like, there's an over-representation of black people in throughout the whole prison system, for example. Yeah. We know that. A good 99% are from economically challenged backgrounds yeah. with working class people, you know. Um, yeah, and you start to realise then 
when you look at that background that other people do get chances. If you're from the right part of the town, if you're white, you know, if you've Definitely. got a father who's um, part of the, a banking system, and this is really out of character for you, Daryl, yeah. <laughs> you know, it can be really out of character for Daryl about three or four times before yeah. anything serious happens. Do you know what I mean? But if you're Kevin from the ends, yeah. it's expected. Your brother's already in prison. You walked out of school because you've got undiagnosed, you know, um, autism or ADHD or something like that, or because you're trauma-induced ADHD because of the kind of background you live in. None of these people get a second chance. Yeah. And, it's, and, and, and they, they feel sort of guilty for asking asking for one, as if they're not entitled to it even. Yeah. And the whole because they've system. had a lifetime of knockbacks. Indeed, all of that. And, and also there's something, you know, emasculating about asking for help. Yeah. You know, when men are cornered, you know, generally speaking, they'll just put up a front. You know, it's the best defence, I guess. Yeah. You're not singular either. You're part of an entire community of traumatized kids yeah. who are misbehaving and stealing and who are sold, you know, every expensive digital thing on the planet via their social media. <laughs> yeah, things they can exactly. never afford. They're just yeah. little capitalists. All the gangs yeah. are just little CEOs. You know? <laughs> yeah, got, they've got a pair of trainers that's worth yeah. more than my car. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's very difficult. It's very difficult even on release um, yeah. to not fall back into it because that's that's the survival mechanism of this yeah. particular community. Um, Can we take you back yes. to you growing up? Was mm. there any of the arts or even poetry in your home growing up? No, no. I mean, I'm, I'm from a sort of, what would you call, decent, lower-class, working-class family. Um, um, what I did have that lots of other families didn't have is my parents read a lot. They were reading, like, horror novels and sci-fi, yeah. but it meant there was always something to read. But in terms of poetry and theatre and... Um, you know, opera, obviously, or any of the, or dance, anything like that. No, absolutely not. So I did, I mean, most of, I learned how to write by going to the local library and reading, you know, and carrying on the stories. Um, and then I got really into punk and I wanted to be a lead singer in a punk band, but I'm really bad. So that did your poetry really... start with lyrics? Yeah, started with lyrics printed on sleeves. So in the punk movement, um, so this is really, for me, I entered it in the early 80s, like 1980, yeah. 1981, so late. I'm a younger generation, the original punks. Um, all the good stuff had the lyrics printed on the sleeves, which is really sad that can't be accessed now because it was not just a listening experience, it was a reading experience. And yeah. there were often lots of great photographs and backstage stuff which was really exciting to see your band hanging in the dressing room. And then these incredible lyrics, and there's a band called Crass, that I was yeah. particularly into. And they were basically, you know, very early spoken word poems over a bit of noise and just everybody shouting together. Um, Chumbawamba, obviously, were of that ilk as well, but they were a bit yeah. more poppy, they were a bit more kind of, a um, bit less uh, anarchist probably than Crass. Crass was a movement, really, yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in, in anarchy. And the lyrics were, were really profound. Um, and not just the lyrics, the ideas. Like, I remember um, Feeding the 5,000 was an album they had. And there was 
yeah, there, there was a record they released, which was called something like Shaved Women or something like that, which to us now is like a nothing kind of conversation. Yeah. Yeah. But then in, in sort of late 70s, yeah. 80s, it was shocking. And so the record company, I might have got the song wrong, but the record company refused to release it. So Crass paid for their own. But instead of putting this song on it, they they called it The Sound of Free Speech. It was a blank, a blank EP, you know? Excellent. So it wasn't just the writing, it was the concepts, the ideas and the sense of resistance and confrontation. And it introduced me to feminism. It introduced me to the idea of gay rights, that's really gay rights, um, and um, the anti-apartheid movement. So even though I was from the ends, <clears throat> access was provided via, you know, records, definitely. And if because I was reading anyway, I just followed, you know, what my stars were read, my heroes were reading. So suddenly I'm reading George Orwell. You know, or and and I hear Baudelaire, Lard. I can't even say Baudelaire, <laughs> Baudelaire. Do you know what I mean? But these these it's such an important thing that people in bands, musicians can do because they have the mass audience. They've got definitely all the young, the youth part of society invested in them. And then it's to lead people a little bit. Like, have you read Bell Hooks? You know, or um exposing them to different kinds of writers and different philosophies and you know the politics around the world punk was brilliant for telling us you know from that North there's something Island, else going on yeah if little fingers yeah things that we holiday in cambodia i'd never heard of cambodia yeah and pol pot but suddenly all the all of the the bands were talking about current affairs essentially yeah. and politics and you know and although I'm going to sound like an old man here, Joel, in the day that you're speaking of, so you had to go to a library or or what, yeah. what have you to, to seek out that information. And because you're looking for something, you would find something else along the way as well, picking up this book, exactly. put that to one side. Exactly. And, There's something know. about involving the body in the research, going out there and following a trail. And, it, and also that leads not just to the library, but it led to people meeting up. You know, you'd look in your local paper, Accrington Observer and Times, and it would have, you know, a women's group meeting, Sharon's house, 7pm <laughs> Friday night. And then we'd all sit earnestly at Sharon's house with our legs crossed. I was always the youngest. They were all <laughs> kind of lesbian feminists from the 70s. And I'd just sit there learning. People don't understand it's how, how um, a bad education it really affects a person. Yeah. We're all entitled to a good education. I was lucky because of my reading, even though I was excluded from school, I got enough GCSEs, O-levels as it were, to go on eventually and go to college, get A-levels and eventually from that to university. But, you know, and while you're at university, I don't know if you've ever been, but one right. of the most shocking things is um, how hard you fight to get in and then all you meet posh people for the first time. Yeah. You think you know posh people, yeah. but it's just people that cut, cut crust off the Warburtons. <laughs> not actually posh. But you get there and there's all these posh people who don't give a damn that they're at uni because it's so easy and so simple. Yeah. And then they're just drinking every night and having a whale of a time. And obviously, I, you know, um, rude not to. I, enjoy, I joined in where I could, but I didn't have the money. 
really to do that. I, I couldn't go for they go for dinner every night in a restaurant. I've never been to a restaurant, but what, but at the same time, the course is democratic in the sense that I am being told the same things that Hurrah Henry is over here, you know, and it's what you do with that. Yeah. Um, hmm. And what I discovered, Joel, I mean, I was at the University of East London. We did have a few people who come from a more privileged background, but not a privileged background, yeah. you know. But what I did notice was those that had the easier life had to go trying to looking for a bit of influence in their work, whereas the others just fought back to their ninth birthday or what yeah. happened a few weekends ago, you know, what they yeah. witnessed or or something like that. So we didn't have to search for our influence. It was it no, was I think there, I you think know. you're completely right. And throughout poetry and spoken word, it's been a preoccupation as well. Is that um, if you think of two sides, very simplistic, but a binary, which is the middle class people, and then and then the people from the ends, the working class and the underclass people. Yeah. Um, the working class, the underclass have got all the talent, and the middle class people have got all the technique. So basically, it's about it's about coming together, isn't it? Between, yeah. And that's why in the literary establishment, there's such a push against confessional poetry or stuff about my life because the people who run the establishment haven't got the stories. No. You know? But that doesn't mean to say that that's enough. It's not enough, a story. You need to know how to tell it. You know, it's not enough that you draw a cell, you know, and put it on the wall. There has to be some technique, some craft, some learning, some time spent yeah. on it, you know? So I think that's our project, really. I'm, I'm really interested in the bridge between the two spaces, yeah. um, keeping all the heart and the passion and the stories, but learning how to tell them in the best way. Where was it you grew up and went to uni? Um, across Lancashire, but essentially Bakeup, Burnley, Rottenstall, Blackburn, Paddyham. So how did you end up down this end? It was the furthest away. <laughs> it was. When I looked at a map, Brilliant. and I did I have a paper map, I looked. Because, because University of Manchester would have been great, but that's like 30 miles away yeah. or something. So I'd be coming home a lot. And I was gay. And yeah. back then, I still am, by the way. And back, <laughs> back then... It was pretty much like declaring yourself to be a paedophile. That's how people yeah, reacted yeah. to it. I know, and it really bad. And, and obviously everybody in my area knew, but there was only one of me, like yeah. that only gay in the village. That whole thing, you know, we laugh about, but was fucking stressful. So I just thought if I go to Kent, which is kind of where part of my family's from, that was the other thing. My my mum's um, mum was, you know, daughter of dockyard workers in Chatham. Kent, oh, yeah. so, which was very mysterious to me, the South, being from the North. Yeah. It was really mysterious in 1980. So I, um, so I decided to go to the University of Kent. I got in. Yeah, and then there was no, no, no chance of anybody popping in. I could be literally as gay as you see today. Um, well, the, the good thing about going to a whole new area is that you can be more free. Yeah. Well, you can be freer, but you can make your own little persona if yeah. you like, you can bring out those bits of your personality that you've hidden forever. Yeah, you can you can be a, a different you. Yes, I think that's really true. And it's very, I mean, most of my life has kind of been characterised by that, leaving 
and arriving in a new place and then leaving again. Essentially what I do, even my day-to-day work is, you know, I don't work in, a, in the regular place. Every day is a first day at work for me. I meet everyone for the first time. And then as my career has gone on, I do a lot of international traveling. So there's a sense of constantly reinventing the self and re- reconfiguring. Yeah. Um, though after a couple of glasses of wine, I just end up back where I started. <laughs> <laughs> Broken tooth, hot bellied leather. <laughs> now, what you're saying there about attitudes towards gay people, I've said on, on here several times, I had that attitude towards gay people when I was growing up of a similar time to yourself. Yeah. Um, in, in the early 80s, I weren't aware of anyone that was gay in where I come from, although it turns out there was, but I just didn't see them. So I was not anti-gay. I was just ignorant towards that area. Yeah, I think um, it's common. That was the prevailing attitude. And it wasn't until, because I went into door work security companies, you know, that sort of thing. And we got a contract with Heavens. And I went down there and what a fucking learning curve it was for this guy. <laughs> I, and I, I say it off of this podcast all the time, the best club I have ever worked. In my book, I wrote about heaven and going there dancing. I've taken um, LSD and I'm wearing a pair of little little rubber shorts. Got my little skinhead, my big quip, the big docks on. Same here. <laughs> Topless dancing like that. And then looking at the light and, and it, it's I suddenly realise who's missing in the room. Yeah. You know, it's rammed room. So it's a sense of, um, it was like in the background. So all their kind of background characters started to wink off like candles in a church. And then suddenly it got really close and it's my girlfriend's brother who dies. So I was aware of of that at that time. But, you know, Derek Jarman wrote this brilliant line about AIDS and he said, the world was the world is ending and it is time to dance. Yeah. You know, which I think wow. really summarises that whole moment in history for gay yeah. people, for us anyway. And I, I do feel that at the time I was there, and I know everyone's, when everyone experiences something for the first time, that is what they feel was the moment for it. But it was it was them little bits of learning that made me enjoy that club and the people there so much. Yeah, it was, it was a great time. Yeah, really was. Um, and it's been, um, so as I've got older, I, I returned to that period of the 90s in particular as a kind of, well, it was when we, you know, I was underclass, I was squatting. I, w- I would have probably died if it hadn't been for the wider lesbian and gay community at that time, particularly yeah. the dyke community who kind of looked out for one another in, in really tangible ways. So it wasn't just a little bit of a conversation. It was come and stay at my squat. Here's some food. Um, get your doll and then donate it to the squat and then, and then tomorrow she gets hers and she'll donate it. Yeah, Suddenly, so we all eat, yeah. Yeah, we're all going to eat and everything else. You get my meaning. Do you know what I mean? And it was um, it was uh, the beginnings of understanding community. So, like, when Conto and Othered Poems blew up as a book and I won the, the big prizes, it was in a, a really moving moment, not just for me, but for all of us who went through that period in history. It feels like it's not just me, but, like, the scene I was working with at the time got yeah. their flowers. Yeah. Everybody got their flowers in that moment. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Albert's, now in fresh colors. 
These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Yeah, that's nice. That's a nice way to, to look at it. And you've had a few accolades. Canto uh, and other poems uh, won the T.S. Eliot Prize. Brilliant. That's the same as winning the Booker Prize. So it's huge and really transformative <coughs> in terms of my career. But then I, I also, the book also won uh, the Polari Book Prize, which is for the LGBT books. And then I, I was awarded Spoken Word Artist of the Year. So that was fantastic. It was nominated for a bunch of prizes too. Yeah. Once you get the Elliot, it's like winning the Turner Prize for you. Once you've got yeah, that, you're not that bothered about winning the Winchester Art Prize. <laughs> Do you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> and no disrespects to Winchester. No, man, but now I'm hungry. Now I'm like, if I do things, you don't give me a prize, I'm going to get angry. <laughs> yeah. Do you know who I am? <laughs> well, I've got to say, talking about that, do you remember us meeting at the Poetry Cafe a couple of years yes. ago? Right. A yeah. little bit out of my comfort zone. And I had to get up and give a little bit about myself just for five minutes or so. When you got up and done your poetry, the, the way you done it was a, a different class. It was, it was great. Oh, thank you. I mean, I've been doing it an awful long time. And you know, the thing about all art is, you know, there's this thing about becoming authentic or you're authentic. And we think... You can do it originally. It takes a lifetime to yeah. be yourself, an absolute lifetime, um, because you're impersonating all the other artists you have ever impressed you, largely at the beginning because you think that's how art is done. Yeah. Um, but then because, cause, you know, you you really connect with their style or whatever, and you don't even know you're doing it. But after years and years and years, finally you find your voice. You, you know, it's a strange thing. It's not how people think it is. Yeah. People think you've got it in the beginning, you know, um, but but everybody starts off as impersonators. <laughs> of course, of course. And that's, that's the only, you know, you can only go by what you see around you. And everyone yeah. has done that in whatever creative field it is. Yeah. But this is why collectivity is the antidote to cultural fascism. That's why you need to form collectives of people who are like you and not like you. Yeah. So what really helped me in my career was joining Outspoken, where I'm, you know, I'm, uh, it's a small collective of artists, basically poets, writers, musicians, who put on a monthly night at the South Bank Centre, but it, but it took us a decade to get there. Um, the reason I really joined is because the other writers, Anthony Lexaguru in particular, are the most extraordinary writers and thinkers and talkers, conversationalists, yeah. provocateur. And it just meant that, I was able not to rest anymore because if someone next to you is so curious about art and the world, you can't help it. You're like, okay, tell me. And then you start learning and then, you know, it's not competitive. It's about pulling each other up, challenging one another. So if you have a group of artists, have people in the room who are better than you. Yeah. Work with people you think, you know, wouldn't even look at you. You know, yeah. because it's so easy, particularly in open mic scenes and, and whatever starting scene, it's so easy to just compare yourself to the person who's just gone on or the one afterwards. 
yeah. you know, the person that you see every time, there's a real comfort in it. But in terms of your work, it will remain the same. Yeah. So, you know, unless you really push. And writing is about evolution. All art is. You know, it's not like, you know, pop stars are supposed to release their big hit by the time they're 20 and then try and replicate it for the rest of their lives. Yeah. We're not on that journey. We are we're as a constant sense of evolution and tangents and sidetracks and back. And that's what's so beautiful about visual and written arts and performed arts is that you, you are never there. There's always another corner you've got to yeah. get around before you arrive. Well, there's a couple of spoken word artists that I've enjoyed. I mean, John Cooper Clark has, has been there for me forever, you know. He just, I don't even know where he takes me, but he makes me feel comfortable, warm and powerful at the same time, you know. Yeah. And Scroobius Pip, I've, I've become sort of pals with Pip since, uh, through podcasting, you know. Yes. But he was one that I enjoyed his music first. I got him the wrong way round. I discovered his music and then found out that he was a poet before that. But then I started listening to his poetry, who then introduced me to Kay Tempest right. and Polar Bear because they were his yeah. pals, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. And maybe about six, seven years ago, I was walking down the end of Kingsland Road and there was an arch and it had this little, like you see in Italy, um, you might have a box on the side of a building and it'd have an image of Christ in there. Yeah. Um, and I saw one of those and I thought, what's that on the wall? It's out of place, you know. And Kay had made up um, all of these little passports and it, they were stacked up in there. And in there was it was a little book of poetry. Oh, and it just really touched me that someone has gone through all of that effort in the hope that it would lighten up someone's day. And it definitely did mine. And as I say, that was maybe seven, eight years ago. And it's still in my bag now. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting you chose those those artists because I I think they represented a real another stage in in UK spoken word and that when it where it started to fill theatres and started to well now with K filling stadiums. Brilliant. I just did a, a gig with them a couple of months ago at Queen Elizabeth Hall's nine hundred people. So you know, going from like performing to six people in a boiled suite in the back room of a pub. And then suddenly Pip arrives and Polar Bear and Kay Tempest yeah. and Holly McNish. They hot they herald, you know, together this new uprising of spoken word, Anthony and Exaguru, all these people. And and suddenly it becomes not the preserve of the middle classes anymore. It becomes this working class movement, educated yeah. working class movement, you know, which is now grown again and it's a lot of kind of it's more culturally democratic, the audiences yeah. and, and and the people on stages. But it's like, now become very middle class to be working class, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to quote John Cooper Clark, the one thing money can't buy. <laughs> <laughs> and he does. When I say, just how you said that then, whenever he comes on telly, I just go, John Cooper Clark. <laughs> you know, I met him, I did a gig with him um, in Morecambe. Brilliant. Um, and uh, just and Lincoln Quasi Johnson, um, a couple of months uh, last year, sometime. And <laughs> John, I spoke to John Cooper Clark quite extensively. He's just the pun master. He's just like punning all yeah. the time. And uh, 
he saw me in a suit and tie. He's like, "What? Won't you dress like that for?" <laughs> and I was like, "I'm a lesbian, John, like my father." And like, <laughs> yeah. I was really, really funny. So um, that was like a lifetime's dream. I made John Bart yeah, Snigger. A great character. And there ain't many of those around, that's for sure, like him. Sure. Well, speaking of other artists, there is a question here that I ask each guest. And it is, if there was you and five other poets, spoken word poets, um, if there was you and five others, past or present, what would your ideal poetry festival be? Oh, my goodness. <sighs> so, Adrian Rich... Anthony and Axel Guru, Selena Godden doing spoken word, uh, two more, Wilfred Owen. Ah, oh, nice. Um, maybe T.S. Eliot. I'm getting really into the wasteland. <laughs> it's such an incredible modernist masterpiece. It's, uh, it's astonishing. And of course, you used, did you use his pen? To, yes, to I did. Sign in. You know that? Yeah, I used his pen to sign a membership fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, which is uh, the video. I never put it up, the video, but I've never seen myself look that happy. <laughs> I was like, a, I turned into a, like a big Labrador. It was a, yeah, it was an amazing, amazing. I just remember seeing somewhere that it used to be a quill. Who did the quill used to belong to? They used to sign in with. Um, I'm not sure, but it could be Byron. There's a whole range of these incredible pens, which is overwhelmed. But I had to have Elliot because I just did. You have a choice. I think they do have choice, James. No, no, sorry, sorry. That yeah, made me choice. sound intelligent then. But you no, did you have a choice? You do have a choice, and they let you know what the choices are before you go. So yeah. you some thought, and then they lay them all out in front of you. It's quite formal, wow. and they have this massive old ledger, and then you sit at the table, and they have a couple of people, and then you ask for the pen. They pass it to you, and you. You know, and there's some really difficult pens there to work with. <laughs> <laughs> so I was relatively, I was relatively um, simple. You know, it was just a fountain pen. But, um, but yeah, there's proper quills and things that people scratching, really? chipping graffiti. You know, it was, um, it was a, a, a really, I was a real moment for me. Other, it's other people acknowledging that you are one of those sitting on the shoulders of many. Exactly. That's it. It's that profound moment when you're looking at the pens and you, as you hold it, you pretty much know you're holding it in a similar way. Yeah. And all that thought came through that pen. And this is the pen they wrote, you know, um, War and Peace with. This is the pen they wrote Mill on the Floss. So all these, these kind of, the sense that all these masterpieces of filtered down this funnel of a pen is extraordinary, you know. Did it entice you to go and buy a pen of your own to keep? Oh, I, oh babe. I mean, did it entice me? I've been doing that since I was like Well, I apologize. Nine. So I've Brilliant. got loads and loads of fountain pens that Excellent. I can use once because I write in a weird way. I slope to the left. I'm right-handed, but I slope to the left. It's very small and very hard pressure. Okay. Like I can dig my way out of the world. <laughs> <laughs> so that means my fountain pens last three and a half minutes. <laughs> but they look beautiful, so I've got yeah. a little kind of display Brilliant. on my shelf. So you've not got a chewed up bick behind your ear most no. of the time. No, <laughs> the one unifying um, characteristic of all writers is we're always looking for pens. We're like, 
I know I should have a pen. <laughs> <laughs> and an ink stain on your shirt. You know what I mean? I, so it's true. I find them on the back of my collar. Like, how do they get that? I'm like, you know, like that drawing on the back of my neck. But yeah. Brilliant. So bringing it back to sort of today-ish, you've mentioned at the start of this conversation that you've worked in prisons for many a while. How did that come about? Um, it was Pentonville Prison, and they was setting up this project about a slam, slam poetry thing with, with the inmates. And the librarian there, I don't know if I'm allowed to name her, um, but she's astonishing. And so this was about, I don't know, 15 years ago. I can't remember exactly when. Um, I just got a call because they wanted to know how to do a slam. And I was like the slam master. So I brought, <laughs> brought the idea of youth slam on a wide scale to the UK. Um, so I was really well known for running slams. And so they they invited me in. And obviously I was like, I didn't know what to expect. I knew they'd chosen me, the men had selected me. I think nice. what they'd chosen is slam poetry. Yeah. Um, and I just remember like standing up on the chapel on stage doing my stuff. Them go, the men going crazy. I started off with, you know, like you asked for a, for a lesbian, well, here we are, mate. We're all like that <laughs> on the outside now. Everyone's changed. Brilliant. <laughs> it's not quite the porn image you were looking for. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. Um, and then I did this gig, um, and I was pretty. I was very, very nervous because I didn't know how it was going to go down at all. But it went down like fire. Brilliant. And and uh, as the best kind of audiences, I've had some brilliant audiences in prison um, because it's the work particularly spoken word, not poetry, but spoken word requires energy and energy exchange. And um, yeah, things have kicked off. I was in Pentonville one time because um, I started being on this project. I called it Slamming the Slammer. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> they'd set up, the library, library would set up these workshops and I'd lead some and other poets I've suggested would lead some others and it would all lead toward this slam. And then guys would get invited to it it's about enough space maybe 100 to 200 and you wouldn't think it all these hard men you know would be in a room listening to poetry and losing their shit there was one time at Pentonville where they were banging on the tables and the tables are against the windows which have wire in them yeah, you know yeah, yeah. And this guy just smacked the window and put his fist through <laughs> and the, that that is enough but what really impressed me was all the guards just looked at it and then looked back at the stage and carried on clapping. Yeah, brilliant. And looked at each other and went, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. And then for, for months afterwards, it was still there. They boarded it Excellent. up. But it was, Excellent. It was a moment of unity, and that's so important in prisons, yeah. to get everyone together. And, I, you know, the, the simplest of poems, simplest bit of spoken word, and suddenly you've got all the guys really appreciating it. So when you go back on the wings, they know you in a different way. Yeah, I don't know exactly. But yeah. it's like that. It's like that out here, though, isn't it? When yeah. there's a collection of people who who are all discovering something at the same time, you've mm. all you've all got something in common, and that chips away at that bloody brick wall that a lot of yes. prisoners or even people out here have got. Once you chip away a few of those bricks and start letting in a bit of sunlight from someone else, it's always yeah. a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think so. We go back to the empathy machines again, don't we? Very you much know? so. So these, so that's how it started. And then um, I've, I've done a lot of work with Pentonville. Then I, I did some work with other projects in Holloway Prison before it was shut down. 
and then I've traveled around quite a lot and visited like the women's prisons are very few in comparison. So, you know, Brixton prison, yeah. Wandsworth, Wormwood Scrubs. What was it? I love the name of that prison. It's great, isn't it? It's like your heart would sink. We used to, when we used to write to friends in there, we'd put woodworm scrubs. Woodworm scrubs. Brendan is an interesting prison. Yeah, I went there a little while ago, done a few workshops in there. Yeah. So that's a very, it's more like a psychiatric prison. It's about a therapeutic prison. Is that therapeutic, what Therapeutic, yeah. Yeah. So um, that's, it's really interesting to me how different all the prisons are. And I think particularly, in, you know, in prisons like Grendon, they really are, have a focus on rehabilitation. Yeah. You know, and, and art being something that provokes that, something that is both therapeutic and takes you out of your, you know, the, the dark hole, the spiral yeah. you could fall into. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's what I'd always said to the guys when I go in, that doing anything creative, it takes you out of your environment and puts you in, a, puts you yeah. in another world. Yeah, but definitely. prisons and arts brings us to to something that you're doing on the second of November when you've been invited by Kersler Arts to curate their annual exhibition at the Royal Festival Hall. That's right. As far as I'm aware, on November first, it's the press opening, and on yeah. the second, open to the general public. And it's been an absolute privilege. I'd volunteered for Kersler for several years. Um, so what I'd be one of the poets, there'll be two poets generally go in and look at all the writing from the prisons and, you know, hand out the various awards. And it's a voluntary post. I did it over lockdown as well. And I always thought of pe it, it, the, the actual curation being really famous people like I, we, we has done it, you know. Um, so when they asked me, I was like, I'm famous. <laughs> I've, I've written with T.S. Eliot's pen and there I'm doing the curse like. look at real girl go <laughs> no I mean I think they have a real commitment to artists who are known for working with a community focus you know and people who have an interest in the in the criminal justice system and working with people within that so it all came together really I think for them um, and uh, and it's been an astonishing process and what a privilege man so and what have you titled it? I've titled it In Case of Emergency. Brilliant. And then as a sort of silent subtitle, Break Glass. Excellent. Um, everything, all the artwork is... So what I get to do is create a theme which creates a world for the exhibition which has its own language. Yeah. So my whole thing is um, is vitrines. So it's glass display cases. Nice. You know, as a metaphor for what's happening to, to you know, inmates. Yeah. But yeah, this idea, the stuff is behind glass and it, it creates a different way of focusing and looking at the work. Um, you know, it's something that must be preserved. But also, as you go through the exhibition, without giving too much away, as you go through it, you'll pass different kinds of vitrines. So one is the sound dome. So nice. the spoken word, only if you stand here will you be able to hear it. So it's these invisible barriers. There's going to be rooms kind of cordoned off, almost like they're, you know, contaminated in some way so you have to break the seal to get into the room to access the work and there's the sort of centerpiece I wanted was a big glass vitrine sugar glass with you know a hundred pieces of artwork or 50 in there breaking out and then flying off into the ceiling all of which is a great idea until we sort of were <laughs> realized that the idea was bigger than the artwork 
and yeah. that's the point of an exhibition. <laughs> like you're not actually the artist, girl. Calm down. Yeah. So just created a sort of poetic metaphor of or the, or the Coastlers did. They've been brilliant to work with because they know what their limitations are and it excites them. You know, yeah. if they know that they've only got two pound fifty, they're like, wow, what can we do with it? What ingenuity are we going to have to use? What metaphors? How can we suggest the same thing you're seeing, but but it's suggested rather than a physical reality? And um, I really like their solutions. I think they've they really worked hard on it. Um, and when you first go in, it is overwhelming. I've been in the Cursor House, like, you know, several times. But um, this time walking in, you open the door and it's there's thousands of artworks stuffed in. Have you ever been it's in? It's like... Oh- many yeah. times it's like um when you see on a comedy film someone open a closet door and yeah. just the barrage yeah, yeah, yeah. of everything falls yeah. down on you well what you get when you curate you get the sense that you open the front door and all these caged voices scream yeah. out shout out or whisper or singing you know there is this sense that that um the presence of absence you know yeah. i mean and you know like the the other silent subheading for the for um, in case of emergency is um excellence i really want that i don't it's yeah. not a pity exhibition it's not a little voyeuristic attempt so come and see what it's like for poor people <laughs> not that. you know it's much yeah. more about um about showcasing extraordinary artwork with extraordinary content but with with real craft attached to it, a real yeah. sense of evolution of the artist within it, which is which is amazing, um, and I really hope people can connect. Connection's a huge part of it. I've got a telephone in the vitrine that will ring, and what I wanted to do is to connect to an inmate who's going to talk about their artwork. Brilliant. You know, it'll be opposite something, or maybe they'll be spoken. And is that possible? We're figuring it out. I mean, it could be things like you know ex-offenders basically my job is great my job as a curator is to come up with ideas and see <laughs> choose yeah. select the artworks and the poetry that we're going to experience select yeah. the i have an idea and figure it out for me yeah, <laughs> i had to i even had i talked to brenda barinti about this you know lady on Brin- yeah brilliant. i was like so i've got this between and there's you in it yeah on a microphone she was like well, how long am I doing that for? <laughs> yeah. Like, just for three weeks. <laughs> yeah. And we also thought about getting National Prison Radio. We always cover the exhibition. Yeah. Get them inside a big glass box. Get them in. So, because something different happens when you're doing that with people. Yeah. You know, I'd like a box that and that we can lock a child. <laughs> <laughs> You'll end up in jail yourself. With water. No. But, I mean, <laughs> have, what happens? Why? Why are we separating? Yeah. What we're saying is these people are far too dangerous to be among us. Yeah. But then you look at the actual crimes people are committing. Yeah. That person who hasn't paid his fine should be in prison. <laughs> you know, keep it away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so they're, they're warnings, aren't they? A lot of inmates are warnings rather yeah. than rather than um, what they've done is so horrific. Um, and obviously there's a lot more violent crime, sex crime um, in the male estate. Yeah. But I go into women's prisons and I just can't work it out. Yeah. Like some of the women, you're like, you've got learning difficulties. You didn't pay your TV license. Not only that, but you opened the bloody door, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's bonkers, isn't it? God. Yeah. So this artwork is a way of of um, breaking the glass. 
I mean, I should say a majority of the work is visual art. Mm. And uh, a majority of the curators have been visual artists. But when it's not a visual artist, that's when it gets quite exciting for me because the visual artists have done so many exhibitions themselves, they know what might set out a good exhibition. But when it's someone who hasn't done that, and they just, they've got a blank canvas to work with. When Speech um, Speech to Bell done hers several yeah. years ago, that was one yeah. of my favourites. And because it was just so unexpected. You know, when it's Ai Weiwei, you know it's going to be intense. Yeah. When it's Anthony Gormley, you know it's going to be quite sophisticated. Yeah. You know, Sarah Lucas, you know it's going to be a little bit dangerous and dirty, you know. Yeah. But when it's when you have no idea what that person's going to do, it's exciting and and although the exhibition's on for like six weeks or something it never gets any less exciting for me and i go up there half a dozen times each, each well we'll day. have to meet up there and go for um go for a coffee together and maybe we'll get in a little glass box together <laughs> yeah it'd have to be and, a fucking well, big glass box to I fit like me in it come to the launch on november 1st because i'm we're there gonna, we're going to do something interesting yeah I'm there that night. Um, I'm not quite sure what, but I've said yes to everything. So <laughs> yeah, will it involve glass? Yeah. <laughs> um, how can anyone see what you're doing, be it website or social media? So best way at the moment, I've just updated my website www.joeltaylor.co.uk, and on there you'll find a link to another website called The Night Alphabet, which is the name of my debut novel coming Excellent. out February next year. February 16th, Queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth Hall. It's a 900-seater. You've got to get tickets. Bring, like, 899 friends. <laughs> <laughs> if I had that many, I would be. <laughs> and your Instagram, which I love the name of. J Taylor Trash. Beautiful. <laughs> right, Miss Trash. Thank you. <laughs> I like the double-barreled name. Very Isn't sophisticated. <laughs> Joel, thank you very much for your time. I've absolutely loved it, and I'll see you on the first. See you on the first. Bye-bye. See you Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. It's a podcast that's produced with the help of the listener. And if you like what you've heard, and you think you might be able to give a little support, there's two ways in which you can do it. If you go over to the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile, you'll find a Linktree drop-down box. And in that box, you'll find two links. One is called Buy Us A Coffee, and it's pretty much that. You can make a one-off payment the price of a cup of coffee. Or, if you're able and want to do it more long-term, you can become a Ministry of Arts Patreon, where you can sign up to support us on a monthly basis. And 100% of your support goes back into the podcast. And if you're not able to do that, that's absolutely fine. This content is free for everyone. But we would urge you to follow us on your socials and show us a bit of love that way. Either way, thanks for listening and see you next time. Ta-da. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. 
the nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.